tikkun ulam. It's a Hebrew phrase that embodies the idea that Jews bear responsibility not only for their own moral, spiritual, and material welfare, but also for the welfare of society at large. It's a phrase that was raised independently by both of my guests this week, two Jewish Bernie supporters who see that sense of social responsibility as central to Bernie's appeal. Bernie Sanders would be America's first Jewish president. No small accomplishment at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise. The Anti-Defamation League reported that 2017 was the worst year it had ever monitored, with nearly 2,000 instances of violence, threats, vandalism, and other expressions of anti-Semitic hate. And who can forget the so-called Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which gathered hundreds of white supremacists and neo-Nazis who marched with tiki torches while chanting, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us! The trend continued over the next two years, with waves of attacks, anti-Semitic robocalls, harassment, and vandalism against synagogues and Jewish cemeteries. 2018 also saw the single deadliest attack against a Jewish community in U.S. history, when a gunman killed 11 people and wounded six at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. The gunman had been active in far-right communities online, echoing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories along with anti-immigrant sentiment. And just a few weeks ago, a man armed with a knife burst into the home of a New York rabbi and stabbed several people. Of course, anti-Semitism has a history stretching back thousands of years, but Trump's politics of division has appeared to add fuel to the flames. Bernie, by contrast, is an anti-Trump, If you've ever watched a Bernie speech or attended one of his rallies, you have heard him say that to build a coalition strong enough to defeat the powerful and wealthy special interests that are ruining our environment and making us sick, we must pull together. Black and white, white Native American, Asian American, Native American immigrant, those who were born in this country, gay and straight, we're going to stand together. This is a winning message, not just according to Bernie, but according to Demos, a liberal think tank which found that voters respond when we call out when race is being used as a method to divide us up, as some politicians have done for decades. When we put the interests of working people first, whether black or white, or brown, working people win. Across racial and religious divisions, voters rate healthcare, the environment, education, and the economy as among their chief concerns. Pundits ask what black women want, ignoring polls that say healthcare is our number one concern, and polls that show Bernie is the most trusted candidate on healthcare. Everyone wants their kids to receive a quality, debt-free education, especially working-class millennials who've traded mortgages for student loan payments. Nearly everyone worries about losing their health care along with their job. Nearly everyone shares a common experience of struggle in a country that all too often tells us, sorry, not sorry, you're on your own. But that's not in the spirit of Tikkun Olam. And it's not the spirit of Bernie. How we're going to win this thing and change this country is together. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and policies that drive the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters here in Washington, D.C. This week, I spoke to Bernie's new director of Jewish outreach, Joel Rubin, 
about the ways that Bernie's own Jewish identity informs his politics. Joel has had a remarkable career, helping to found J Street, working in the Obama State Department, teaching at Carnegie Mellon, and more. He's also been touched personally by the Trump era's rising tide of anti-Semitism. He's a member of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that was attacked two years ago. I also chatted with friend of the show, Katie Halper, about the anti-Semitic tropes that get directed Bernie's way by unscrupulous media types. And I asked her how we can push back and pull together. I'm so glad to be joined today by Joel Rubin, who was recently announced to be our Director of Jewish Engagement or Outreach. But you have had this incredibly varied, long, and interesting career. Can you Thanks. walk us through a li- some of the roles that you've you've occupied in your past? Oh, uh, that's that's wonderful. Thank you so much for asking me about that. It's a, it's always a little humbling to be in the position of explaining who you are and why you're in a role like this. For me, I grew up in a very mainstream Jewish household, conservative in the the religious sense, but very mainstream, very much uh, identified with Jewish culture, with visits to Israel, with participating actively in the synagogue. So I spent much of my youth going to Jewish summer camp, participating in youth groups, Mm -hmm. learning Hebrew badly, but learning it nonetheless. (laughs) and really becoming confident in in my own identity as as a a Jewish American, but growing up in the ideals of tikkun olam, which means healing the world. Mm. And the idea that we are good stewards of this planet, we are good participants in this society if we're striving to make it better. And if we're working with our fellow man and woman to make a better earth and a better planet. So it actually was part of my upbringing that I was not just Jewish, but that I was American and part of the idea that we should be helping to create a better world for our our families and and our future. So that's been kind of driving me professionally ever since. I went to Brandeis University, which is a predominantly Jewish school. I studied abroad at Tel Aviv University, was uh, a participant on a Holocaust trip uh, called the March of the Living, uh, which is about understanding the roots of the Holocaust in Poland and, and uh, experiencing that firsthand. And it really inspired me to go into the Peace Corps, mm. quite frankly, afterwards. And that was, for me, a, a sort of a, 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 the awakening of getting outside of myself and that sort of Jewish upbringing in America and really expanding and building on Tikkun Olam. So I went into the Peace Corps, was a volunteer in environmental education in Costa Rica, hmm. and uh, I speak better Spanish than Hebrew. <laughs> but <laughs> don't test me. And, and, I can't. Uh, <laughs> vamos a hablar en español. No, uh, it really it was fantastic. And ever since then, I, I've been fortunate to um, have um, I've sort of melded those two worlds and tried to bring that into my work and I can go further and deeper into the work. But well, so, the, the well, personal is really part in, of my In work. some ways, you're kind of under underselling some of these big ticket Uh-oh. items, being former Deputy <laughs> Assistant Secretary of State in the Obama administration, <laughs> being an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon, yeah. being yes. a national security expert for Axios. And for a lot of people who might be familiar with you already, it might be from your appearances on networks, including Fox, following the tree. And MSNBC. And MSNBC. Sorry, I don't want to put (laughs) you in a box. (laughs) But going on to talk about um, the horrible shooting at the the Tree of Life Synagogue, where your parents attended. The night before, they were there for that Friday night uh, service in the shooting in Squirrel Hill in my neighborhood where I grew up. I'm a fourth generation Pittsburgher. I was back in Pittsburgh last week visiting my grandmother, who's Mm. 97, and she was born in Western Pennsylvania. Her parents were the immigrants from Romania. I drove by Tree of Life, which was a place I spent dozens and dozens of weekends at. It was the synagogue down the street from our our house, and the synagogue is still boarded up. Hmm. Uh, My three daughters were baby named at that synagogue. We went back home to Pittsburgh, and it's part of our family, and it was devastating to see that happen in Squirrel Hill. But the community is strong, but wounded, deeply wounded. So professionally, what I've tried to do is to sort of bring these, these lanes together and my Jewish upbringing, my commitment to social justice, tikkun olam. I came to work in Washington after graduate school and worked in the government for a number of years and was a civil servant and eventually realized that I needed to get out in particular 
when the Bush administration, where it was a civil servant, was uh, prosecuting the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the end point. And I went to work on Capitol Hill and joined Senate Democrats and worked as a foreign policy advisor on Capitol Hill. And then was fortunate to have found an opportunity from there to help found J Street, mm-hmm. which is uh, a prominent and incredibly successful, and I'm extremely proud of, of the organization, an incredibly successful pro-Israel, pro-peace voice uh, here in Washington and nationally. And I was the founding political director and government affairs director, so sort of the Washington hand, working the Hill, working the politics uh, for J Street at, at its inception. So your, your bona fides <laughs> here are kind of unimpeachable. So I want to ask you, why is it that yeah. you wanted to come on board and work yeah. with the Bernie Sanders campaign? It's simple. Bernie's building a movement and Bernie is the change on these issues. Uh, he is He's the pivot point mm. for, as an American Jew, what it means to be an active participant in American life and a progressive who is wanting to not just be seen as Jewish and not just be seen as American and not just to be seen as someone who is an idealist, but all of those together. And he embodies, frankly, in his in his positions and in his views and in his policy recommendations. And I am a policy geek at heart, so <laughs> I talk that way a lot. And I, I, when I go on on TV, I, I always default to policy things because I think that's what really matters. At the end of the day, when you're seeking to be the head of the American government, you're seeking to enact policy that changes people's lives. Absolutely. And the president of the United States, unlike the current one, has to care about the policies. And Bernie personifies good policies, progressive policies, and also, from my perspective, very Jewish yeah. policies. I, I will say that proudly. So d- tell me tell me what you mean by that. So healing the world, tikkun olam, I come back to that a lot, but I, I, it is such a core ethos across the gamut in the Jewish community. If you want to heal the world, you want to stop climate change and reverse it. If you want to heal the world, you want everyone to have health care. Mm-hmm. If you want to heal the world, you want everyone to have enough food on the table and pride in their work. Mm-hmm economic justice. These are core Jewish values. These are not solely Jewish values. These are in many ways universal values. But as a Jewish American, I deeply identify with them. So to me, the values that Bernie espouses that are clarified through his policy proposals are rooted in a worldview that is intrinsically Jewish. Mm. So and that resonates with me. That's that's fascinating on, on kind of two levels. One, because Bernie has gotten some pushback uh, from people who want right. him to talk more about his cultural identity, to talk more about his past um, and personal aspects of his biography, and who increasingly are kind of, there's been this push to characterize him as insufficiently Jewish huh. and asking him sure. to do more to kind of unpack his biography. Yeah. And then there's this other prong of, a thing that exists is this what feels like an intentional decoupling of leftist values from sympathy toward Jewish people or or rather more pointedly an association mm-hmm. between leftism and anti-Semitism right. that is kind of being manifested. So I want to talk to you about both of those things. How have you perceived first Bernie's engagement with his Jewish identity? And then second, what do you say to folks who, who are skeptical mm-hmm. of the left as being a friendly place for Jewish people? I'll take the latter one first because uh, as you're framing the question, I'm getting all these shots of memories (laughs) of people calling me a self-hating Jew Mm. when I helped found J Street, Mm. right? You know, my daughter just had her bat mitzvah. We belong to a synagogue. I'm on the Israel committee. Leave me alone, right? Like, (laughs) like, and and I got attacked when I went to Capitol Hill early on at J Street by people saying, you hate Israel. Yeah. And I would respond in in Hebrew, like, ma'atomer. And then they would just kind of stop and say, no, 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 I didn't mean to challenge you. I'm sorry. So it takes a little bit of it takes a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. And it's just people when they're uncomfortable and they're challenged in ways that they're not traditionally challenged, where someone says, for example, it's pro-Israel to support a state of Palestine. Mm-hmm. It's pro-Israel to support peace. That makes a lot of folks really nervous. Yeah, But when you peel that back and you start explaining, this is why you suddenly understand that Actually, most people agree with you. What I found phenomenally fascinating in the early days of J Street was how many 
members of Congress would say, thank God you guys created this. Mm. And we would act as almost like therapists because they spent years getting beaten up by the right wing in our community who said, if you want to be pro-Israel, you can never say Palestine. Yeah. Like as a word, you can't say that. Mm. You can never say diplomacy with Iran, Mm. period. Red lines don't say it. And so you have progressives, progressive Jews, afraid to say that stuff. Progressive Democrats, non-Jews, afraid that they would get attacked by the Jewish community. Mm. So we changed that dynamic. Bernie's doing that on a, a, a mega level. Mm. But the thing is, is it takes it takes leaning in on it. I think then once that you start changing that conversation, all things are available. It's really important when I hear Bernie talking about issues and hear him leaning in. He's coming from a place of support for Israel and support of being Jewish. But he's not coming at it from a, a perspective of, I'd say, racist. I'll put it that way. Okay. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt. You know, I've heard a lot of racist commentary from mm. the other side mm. about being supportive of uh, this position. The progressive left has been criticized as being anti-Semitic mm-hmm. for being critical of Israel. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that at all. Right. And the reason I don't buy it is because I actually listen to what they say. And there have been so many racist attacks against progressives coming from the far right who want to make the mainstream Jews or those up for grabs or the liberal Jews and the liberal Democrats in general nervous about not towing the line. Right. Right. So where, yeah. where Bernie comes in, where he's shaking things up is he doesn't tow the line. And that makes them really nervous that a Jewish person who is comfortable in his own skin is saying things that break that line into. Yeah, that really resonates with me a lot. We talked about this a little bit when we first met, that from my perspective, given the prominence that identity has taken in certain respects in the States and the kind of the, the leeway that folks are given by virtue of our identities, I have found that I have been able to have certain kinds of sensitive conversations about identity politics and race relations with respect to Black Americans mm-hmm. that other writers who are not Black American, who aren't women, haven't been able to do. And I feel that my identity has been able me to have the comfort, let's say, I don't want to say covered, but the comfort, let's say, to talk about subjects that otherwise might have me immediately dismissed as racist or sexist, right? Right. And so there's something that does feel empowering about having finally this like first Jewish president, potentially, Mm -hmm. who is able to talk about basic human rights concerns that Mm -hmm. have been um, much less stigmatized globally in other other countries, you know, in the UN context and other parts of the world, where in America we have, there has been a lot of like fear that certain kinds of comments will be construed as anti-Semitic in part because of this very concerted white wing effort Mm -hmm. to make that the case. So much so that you have this kind of topsy-turvy world where Donald Trump is positioning himself as the person who is most friendly to Jewish people at the same time he's using a number of veiled, stigmatized, you know, language. At the same time, he's saying that American Jews that would vote for a progressive are, quote, disloyal. You know, what do you make of the right's ability to kind of own the the space as the only pro-Jewish group mm-hmm. in this country? So Donald Trump inspires the racists in our society. Mm. And he inspires the white nationalists. And the white nationalists are the ones who are walking into synagogues and shooting them up in the name of white supremacy. Yeah. Donald Trump goes to Jewish events and says, you won't vote for me because you like your money too much. And, yeah. and uh, I, are, are you like your money too much, so you will vote for me. You won't vote for the liberal candidate. He equivocates on Charlottesville and says both sides have very honorable, fine of people. Yeah. And then he hides behind his uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and a very right-wing approach to Israel policy as, uh, in his mind, justification for being essentially a bigot and a racist and coddling those who attack the Jewish community. So I think we have to be very clear about this. And I think it's it's very helpful with Bernie as a candidate for saying these things in public because Donald Trump will use anti-Semitism as a political weapon. And he will and his allies will attack the Democrats and have been consistently attacking Democrats by portraying Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar for example, as the most dangerous anti-Semites in the world because they want a state of Palestine. And 
then they will attempt to criminalize speech on campus about BDS. Regardless of how you feel about BDS, speech should not be criminalized in the United States of America in 2020. And so that's where Trump is coming from. And so for Bernie and the movement's uh, values to truly reflect, uh, positions truly, truly reflect our values, we must be ensuring that all of the components of our community are, are flourishing. I mean, I remember when I was in Costa Rica in the Peace Corps and I'm living in a remote village and everybody's Catholic or evangelical and I'm the Jew in the village and I'm showing them what it means to light the Hanukkah candles and they would come and talk to me about the Bible and there was so much tolerance and openness and it was so rich and it was fun and I'm still in touch with all of them and that's the world we want to live in where we're different and the same at the same time and we don't weaponize our difference to defeat the other politically in order to cause pain and harm and death. Yeah, That's really... Uh, what Bernie represents, and I'll go back to, to Bernie on this because this is why I want to be here, is he represents the deepest, darkest challenge to what Trump is trying to do mm-hmm. because he's a Jew. Yeah. So there is a way in which it is empowering to have the identity and to be able to dive headfirst into these subjects. Mm-hmm. But there's also a piece of me that never wants to unwittingly open the door to genuinely sure. bad faith commentary or bad faith attacks, right? Like I don't want to open up a cover like for the fact that there are obviously genuinely anti-Semitic views all over the place that you can find regardless of partisanship or political position in the same way that I I find about anti-blackness or misogynoir or what have you. And so do you ever, do you worry about that? Do you ever, you know, in in making full Mm -hmm. throat defenses of leftists or talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. Trump's executive order to protect Jewish people that's really um, in large part an attack on free speech on college campuses, yeah. right? And and, it, and really just meant to target um, BDS. Do you ever um, feel like that's a difficult balancing act? It's a highly difficult balancing act, but it's one that we have to do. Yeah. Because newsflash, we don't live in a pure world where everybody is purely perfect from our perspective. Yeah. We're all human. We're all fallible. There are things that people say on the Democratic side that I would construe as anti-Israel Yeah. that I don't like. Do I cancel them all out entirely? No. Do we talk to them? Yes. Do we condemn certain words and try to bring them in and work with them? Yes. Yeah. Do they tell us what we're saying is wrong? Yes, they should, too. I really, really, really reject the notion that we have to somehow purify ourselves by anybody who makes a comment or a statement that we disagree with and just expunge them from our midst. No, but we are, and put my Jewish hat on on this, we are responsible for engaging and discussing and describing and, and talking. And I think that that's, you know, in the arc of life, it's, it's about learning and growing. You know, the Ilhan Omar controversy from last uh, winter, February time, less than a year ago. It seems, yeah, it seems feels like, like we have beyond. this every month or two, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but the congresswoman said things that really upset a lot of people. Mm. And she was told that. And she recognized it. And she recanted certain things and not other things. I don't expect her to suddenly become Bibi Netanyahu's best friend right. in order to give her acceptance into Jewish life, right? Like that's, first of all, who am I to judge her in that way. Yeah. But I do think politically it's crucial for us to embrace people who have different ideas. And when we don't like some of their ideas, we talk to them about it, but we keep on embracing them. When the United States becomes a fascist country, or when we, when we become a country where the idea of diversity is no longer accepted, we Jews lose. Like we have thrived in this country better than any country in history of the planet. Mm. No one will tell you anything different. Mm. Now, Israel is a different thing. And we can talk about that, but there has never been a country where we as a minority have thrived like in the United States. Mm. Why? Because it's an open, tolerant, diverse democracy. And when we lose that, we lose everything. And part of democracy is about dealing with difference. You and I spoke about the idea of cancel culture. Mm can't have cancel culture. Mm. It doesn't mean we can't criticize, but criticism doesn't mean cancellation. Yeah, when people make mistakes, the the redemptive aspect, mm. the what what penance looks like has been I think largely missing from the conversation, and that's what makes people so frustrated when you only have 
cancellation and forgiveness, neither of those options seems palatable to people on the whole. There's half people who are going to want the cancellation, half people who want, you know, complete forgiveness. But without that conversation about what does it look like for someone to rehabilitate themselves? What does the sincere apology looks like? look like? If the apology isn't enough, what does it mean to do acts of penance that demonstrate that you have not only learned from your mistake, mm-hmm. but made efforts to repair what you've done wrong, Mm -hmm. right? And when you have that as a third option, I think that you have a lot less division about how people think that certain bad actors, if, if you were... Uh, if you will, should be should be treated. And I look forward to having a conversation because we have such a pluralistic, diverse campaign um, where we're able to have those kind of conversations, I think, without the knee-jerk responses, where people yeah. are trusted to be talking in good faith about issues of gender or race or religion or opioid addiction status or class or what whatever, what have you, without feeling like the purpose of that conversation is to ostracize people or excommunicate them from society. If we're going to be good leftists and we believe in the rehabilitation of people who have committed crimes and, you know, a lot of people in our ranks are up for abolishing prisons and all kinds of other things, then you have to also have that that kind of attitude for lesser crimes, the kinds of crimes that aren't, you know, criminal. It's it's tolerance, Mm -hmm. a word that's not in vogue Mm -hmm. politically. It's Mm -hmm. hard. And in a political campaign, it's really hard. How do you show tolerance? Don't you want to say it's us or them? And well, you should be able, one should be able to have a political fight and not hate their opponents. Mm. That should be the objective here. In a democracy, in a healthy, thriving democracy, we should not want to hate our opponents. We, We may feel things of hate. God knows it's not easy in this moment. But I really believe that it's essential to think about the day after we win. And the day after is a governing day. And in the United States, we're such an incredibly diverse country, ethnically, culturally, economically, geographically. The country is so diverse. One can't govern without a healthy dose of tolerance and understanding and appreciation for yeah. difference. I mean, I wonder, some, some people, there are going to be people who listen to this and say, yeah, not me. Like uh, sure. things are too, have been too bad. I've experienced too much trauma. It's not up to me personally to forgive. And I and I had a conversation um, on an earlier podcast episode um, where we were talking about um, Islamophobia. Mm. We were talking about you know the difference between saying any one individual should be required to. This isn't dictating that any one individual should have a certain kind of a feeling. You can have your private emotional responses. But I do think that there's some credibility to you having this conversation, having been so directly impacted by the Tree of Life shootings. I think there's mm-hmm. there are folks who would say it's a privileged position to say that we should bring you know this feeling of to- a tolerance or understanding into these scenarios. But what I find again and again is it is people who actually have the closest um, proximity to you know, experiences of tragedy or, or bigotry, et cetera, who do tend to have that more like a kind of open-mindedness toward it. Mm-hmm. And the people who are actually more attenuated from these events who take the strong response that we shouldn't have to communicate with people. Because what I find is people who are experiencing intolerance tend to be integrated in communities, that the communities that they're talking about who are impacted. A lot of black people, you know, family members who live in the South who are everyday working and living with people mm-hmm. who are more conservative, who might have views that are different from them. You know, they are approaching it as a more intimate kind of person-to-person relationship mm-hmm. because they have more intimate person-to-person relationships than perhaps the professor living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. who has all the right ideals on paper, yeah. but who doesn't actually have the lived experience. And I find that curious. You know, you put your finger on so many important buttons in this, and it's because... When you go through the fires, you understand how incredibly sensitive things can be. Yeah. Yet I don't want that to be mistaken for a passivity. Right. Or a turn the other cheek. Right. Mentality. It makes you want to fight harder. Right. For what you know is right. But the way to win is to not just speak to your own echo chamber, but to get the people on the other side to come to your side. Right. Like we win when we got 75%, not 50.1%. And to me, that's that's just called politics and that should be completely self-evident. But there is is a significant 
subset, I would say, of liberals in America for whom the idea of convincing someone who voted for Trump is a betrayal in of itself, an articulation of a desire to convince let's say an Obama to Trump voter to mm-hmm. come back to the, mm-hmm. to Democrats is perceived as an admission that you, one, don't care about other constituency groups as much as that group. Uh, for example, people of color or non-voters or people who have been disenfranchised, you know, that you are somehow privileging those quote unquote white, white working class votes. There's a real culture of opposing doing anything that resembles political persuasion. Mm-hmm. And instead, the emphasis from, I think, a lot of people, a lot of Democrats seems to be, let's just find the people who we can identify as for us for demographic reasons. Yeah. Presuming, of course, that people who de- belong to those demographic cohorts are, of course, going be. to vote for Democrats, right. even though we're seeing increasingly those patterns are not as fixed as they once were. Correct. And appealing to them on that basis, as opposed to appealing to them on the basis of delivering substantive material goods to them. Mm-hmm. And I think what we saw in 2016 was a whole lot of people, including a whole lot of black voters that, whose votes we very much needed in the Midwest, who felt like they weren't given they substantive yeah. reasons to come out and vote. Yeah. And there was this presumption that the fire, yeah. the so-called firewall was going to come through. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there's something really important about having that kind of more humanistic, I think, approach that you're taking because it forces you to respect all voters on the basis of, of their humanity. What you're articulating is transformation, right? Mm. And this is what Bernie's talking about. Mm. What we're talking about here is transformation, is about getting a society to think differently about its priorities. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a line we always use in government, like you want to see what the government's priorities are, look at the budget document, mm-hmm. right? Like that is it. It's what the money request is is what tells you the priorities are. So we we want Americans to think about priorities the way we think about them. We want Americans to think about healthcare and an economy that works for everyone and a safe environment mm-hmm. and a, a, a smart national security policy. And those are not inherently partisan concepts. Yeah. So what Donald Trump is doing, and, and I do want to bring it back to that one because I do yeah. think it's critical is he is attempting to prey on our differences in order to win elections. Yeah. Preying on the deeper, darker, negative urges. There is no message of unity. There is no message of bringing people together. There is no message of engaging the other at all. It is about turning people against each other to win, which means you govern from a position of hate. Mm. And I'll put my Jewish hat on. <laughs> Jews, we love to talk about the Holocaust as a comparison, and and it's always a dangerous thing. So I'm not going to talk about the Holocaust as a comparative. But I will say that when I went with my daughter's seventh grade class from her middle school to the Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C., there was a very clear display for the kids to read about the political culture in Germany post-World War I Mm. through the 1920s into the 30s and how that led to the Holocaust. We are not inherently guaranteed a nice, healthy, happy political culture, or even a democracy. Even John Roberts the other day came out and said Americans might be taking their democracy for granted. Hmm. So what we want in our candidates are people who actually value that. And in the United States of America, that means valuing diversity, that means valuing the others, even if they don't agree with you 100% of the time, it means valuing voters who may have gone a different direction the last time, yeah. It means valuing people. Yeah. And I think that to me, that is part of healing the world. Yeah. That is part of Tikkun Olam. That is part of building a healthier society. That's part of winning an election, not for the sake of winning, but for the sake of transforming a society for the better. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining me today, Thanks, Joel. Mom. I really look forward to talking with you and working with you over the course of the, the next half a year of this campaign that we have it's yet exciting. left thank in front you. of us. Thank, thank you. So you. Much. There were two forces, I think, that shaped my political views. One, that I grew up in a family that did not have a lot of money. And the pressure of not having money on my family is, I think, the same pressure that exists for millions of families throughout this country and people in this room right now. The second part of my life that shaped my views is being Jewish. Crying. When I would read books about the Holocaust, these picture books of what happened at Auschwitz, I never could understand why would people do such terrible and horrible things. 
to people. After all of a horrible 20th century, which has seen a number of genocides, one might have hoped and believed that maybe, just maybe, the world would understand that we share a common humanity. So I'm happy to have friend of the pod, Katie Halper, back with me today, particularly because Katie is someone who has written and podcasted and talked a lot about what Bernie's Jewishness means in the context of both this election and how he's been treated both kind of contradictorily as not Jewish enough by some camps and then also smeared with, would you describe them, Katie, as anti-Semitic tropes? Yeah, I think that's a good, uh, very good term for it. And thank you so much for having me, Brie. Yeah, of course. Um, But yeah, I think you see both things, right? So you see that he's the, he has anti-Semitic tropes lobbed at him, kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes lobbed at him. And at the same time, it's like the worst of both worlds. He's subjected to those. And at the same time, he's, his Jewish identity is erased. And one of the things that I've written about is how much Sanders Jewish identity is actually informs his politics. Mm. Sometimes people, it's pretty offensive, especially when non-Jews, uh, I don't know if I can say this, when they go explain Jewish identity <laughs> and they don't get that you, there's a really rich tradition and history of secular Jewish identity because sometimes people are confused or they call him a fake Jew because he's not religious, but that's a one facet of Jewish identity. And there are tons of people who have very strong Jewish identities ranging from, you know, someone like Larry David, Sigmund Freud and Einstein was kind of he had an interesting relationship with religion, but he definitely wasn't kind of traditionally religious in the traditional Orthodox Jewish sense. And so people don't understand a lot that there is this tradition. In fact, there's actually a concept called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world, which is the social justice concept mm. that comes from Judaism. And that's that's seen and applied in lots of ways in the secular world. So not to get like too academic about it, but it is, you know, and and through history we saw, right, like with the civil rights movement, a lot of the white allies of the civil rights movement were Jewish. Mm -hmm. And for instance, you know, with Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney, the three men who were brutally killed in Mississippi by the KKK because they were registering black people to vote, one black man and two Jewish men which wasn't that uncommon um, to see that kind of solidarity. Yeah. And of course, Sanders himself talks about his identity, how having half of his his father's side of the family wiped out in the Holocaust. He also comes from a very interesting internationalist Jewish tradition. And this is a kind of particularly Jewish radical tradition of universalism and internationalism, where it's not about just kind of being in solidarity with other Jews. It's very anti-tribalist. And he talks about how there was a great moment during 2016 where a Muslim, a black female Muslim student talked about white supremacy and she and he invited her up to the stage with him and, you know, put his hand on her shoulder and talked about how his life has, his, you know, how he experienced white supremacy and anti-Semitism and bigotry. And there, it's also really interesting because there are, he has a lot of Muslim support mm-hmm. and Arab American support, which mm-hmm. is interesting because I think people get the sense that he takes his Jewish identity and from there he makes connections to other people struggling and suffering. Given, though, that there is this way that Bernie's personal history has been a central part of this campaign, right, with his opening speech in Brooklyn, talking about his roots there, talking about his family growing up nearby in a tenement apartment, talking about his father's family being largely wiped out in the Holocaust. Why do you think it is that there are those who are seeking to diminish his Jewishness? in the context of this race. Yeah, that's interesting. So there are a lot of reasons. I mean, sometimes you have just cynical people who love pretending that he's this just, uh, you know, they like pretending he's a straight white dude who's out of touch and who has only is only supported by straight white dude misogynists. Of course, that's a harder and harder argument to make because just the demographics don't prove that. And as I'm sure you know and have talked about, Sanders supporters are less white and less male than any other candidate. Right. So it's part of this kind of identity politics, the like kind of the cynical wielding of identity politics to yeah. say the more Bernie doesn't subscribe to any protected class or isn't seen as a part of a protected class, the more we can diminish him and his role right. in this in this race compared to other candidates who are. Exactly. So the more they can, the more he's just a white dude, the easier it is for them to perpetuate the myth 
that he speaks to only white dudes, mm. that he's part of. And again, it's interesting because he I mean, he wouldn't say, I'm sure. And I've never said being Jewish is not being black. I mean, OK, you can be black and Jewish, obviously, and there's interlapping <laughs> right. intersectional definitions. But in terms of just comparing them, which which often happens, right, people will often compare like slavery and the Holocaust or being a non-black Jewish person and being a non-Jewish black person, they're not the same thing. You don't walk around with the same kind of target on you. Although, interestingly enough, you know, there have been a lot of the hate crimes. Uh, a lot of them have been anti-Semitic. Yeah, d- disproportionately, overwhelmingly, Jew- Jews have been the target of hate crimes, particularly of, in recent history. I feel right, like the, there's, right. a, there's a chart we can perhaps throw up in the video version that shows the overwhelming spike that's been happening. And recent events, right. particularly with the stabbing in New York, really right. highlight how much that's growing. I think that, you know, it's not the same as systemic racism. And and Sanders knows that and understands that. Because also, we have to remember, being Jewish when Sanders was growing up is very different from what it was today. I mean, my mom is younger than Sanders, but she's a boomer. She's a feminist Bernie bro boomer. (laughs) And she and my uncle, you know, would have rocks thrown at them just because they knew my their name was Eisenberg, I guess, or they knew mm-hmm. that they were because of the neighborhood, their school they went to. This was a time when Jewish identity was very different from what it's like today. And even growing up in the Bronx, which was not devoid of Jews, you faced that kind of stuff. So it's an, this is a whole other interesting question about how much you choose your Jewish identity. And today mm-hmm. there's a lot more, I think, choice than there used to be. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are kind of less online or not as engaged in, in every single article that comes out, can you explain some of the instances um, of anti-Semitism that you've observed in the media? So one part of it is, I would say, there's just this general, why aren't you Jewish? And I think that's anti-Semitic like Jewish identity policing, and it's mm. ignorant. And, you know, you don't go to synagogue or you don't wear a yarmulke, so you're not really Jewish. So that's a form of anti-Semitic anti-Semitism. And again, I think there's some people who really just don't get it. And a lot of people who are cynical about it. Another thing is that, you know, we see people like Jonathan Chait jumping down the throats of people like Ilan Omar, calling her, accusing her of perpetuating anti-Semitic tropes. And you can fall accidentally into an anti-Semitic trope, but sometimes he would say that about her and it wasn't even there at all. There was like, no, they're there. Like she didn't talk about dual loyalty. She talked about allegiance. And I mean, this is another thing. But uh, and of course, Zionists, a lot of them are Christian. So being critical of APAC and, and this kind of aggressive hawkish Zionist project is not inherently anti-Semitic. But anyway, somehow all these people who see anti-Semitism all over and there is anti-Semitism, but they see it, they conflate valid criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Mm. Somehow they didn't see it, notice it when, for instance, the Politico wrote an article called Bernie Sanders might still be cheap, but he's sure not poor. And the image that they had was him holding a house and having two houses coming out of his head because, of course, they love that thing about how he has three houses. Yeah, he has three houses. He has a house in the state he lives in. He has a house in or whatever. He, he has a place to live in D.C., Vermont. And God forbid he has a, a house where his he, he and his children and grandchildren like to spend time in Vermont. And the guy lives so modestly. That's what's so funny. I mean, you compare his households to the households of other people. And again, every single senator has two homes at least, and a lot of them vacation. I tweeted when that article came out about his cheapness. I tweeted, this is just fantastic, but it could be even better. Why not add a Jewish star or make his nose hooked? Maybe some rodent imagery. I'm just blown away. Sorry to end on an earnest note, but you're just despicable people. Recently, there was some imagery that was like not so far away from that when we announced um, last week, our fundraising numbers, of course, being, yes. you know, you know, th- yes, th- raising $34 million dollars so, and blowing yeah. everybody else out of the water. The image that was chosen to accompany those results. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is a classic greedy Jew stereotype, kind of money grubbing stereotype. And so the image that two places had of Sanders, it was really fascinating. Two images that were used. One was used by NPR and one was used by Washington Post. And both of them use this image of him with his hands together. There's this other classic image of a very anti-Semitic cartoon of a guy with the typical stereotypes, a big nose, the, the yarmulke or kippah on his head, and doing that, this, this gesture of having your hands together, like you're, like you're rubbing your palms together in excitement. It's a real trope. It's the cheap, you know, this cheap, greedy Jew who's excited about like pulling one over on people, all the things, all the, all the tropes of like the, the trickster, the shyster, 
We've seen this, you know, Clara Jeffries had like a really gross image that she put next to Sanders that made him look also like a big nose. Um, of Mother Jones, ironically Mother enough. Mother Jones, right. Who, wow, purportedly she her progressive um, outlet. But, and, and also the political thing I just want to add, not only did it have that, then it had an image of him in the article standing in front of a tree. And it was called an illustration, like if you doubled, if you tried to save it. It came up an illustration of Bernie Sanders standing next to a tree with dollars as leaves. Like that's what Politico's graphics people called it. So I'm curious, how do, how do you think all of this is going to play out in the election? You know, I, I'm kicking myself for not actually asking our Jewish outreach coordinator about about the Jewish outreach part of this. But, you know, there is a mindset among the pundit class that basically Everyone who's non-white or non-male or non-Christian is looking for the candidate that just closest approximates their identity group and is voting for that person. Obviously, we've seen in poll after poll, that's not been the case. Everyone's very confused and frustrated by why Bernie has the largest amount of Latino support. Um, I think he's number two or three with black voters and has been consistently throughout, does much better with black voters than either Kamala Harris or Cory Booker had done. Right. So what do you think the the status is right now? How is Bernie being perceived by the Jewish community? Well, I think, you know, I, there's an interesting, there's like the APAC Jewish community, which like so many other powerful but not representative kind of organizations that we see in lots of different communities, they are a very public face of Jewish identity. They're very well uh, funded. They're very politically connected, but they don't represent a majority of the Jewish people's outlook and politics. So that's, you know, you'll you'll hear criticism of Sanders that come from certain right wing Jewish individuals, Sheldon Adelson, thank God he doesn't like Sanders, um, <laughs> or or APAC. And and then what's really important, and this is why, you know, you have other Jewish organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, J Street, these are organizations that challenge the kind of very not representative, but but overly represented in media and overly represented in in, in the political elites, Jewish identity of of something like APAC. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear, you know, it's it it distorts what the Jewish voice is. And of course, it's, there's no monolith, like there's no monolith of any group. But most Jews are, you know, they do vote Democrat in high numbers. You know, the Jews that you often hear from. The Jewish people who are cited in me, by the same media elites and political elites who hate Sanders will, of course, elevate those voices, the voices of, of Jewish critics of Sanders, as opposed to his overwhelming support. And, you know, related to what you just brought up in terms of the narrative of, of you know, people only wanting to be only supporting people who they overlap with in terms of certain identity uh, aspects. You know, there's a reason. Look, Pete, Mayor Pete's a millennial. Millennials don't like him. They like Sanders. It, it's not about identity per se. It's about which I'm not dismissing the importance of identity and representation. But people are, you know, hip to the fact that that the more important thing, if you're a millennial, for example, is that you have someone who ad- understands the situation of millennials who are struggling. That's more important than someone who happens to be a millennial who doesn't understand that, who doesn't want to provide people with free college, who has this disingenuous narrative about how it's unfair to ask working people or poor people to pay for um, free college tuition for rich people, which is, I mean, we've talked about this, I think, what a bad argument that is and, and how if you if you care about working people and poor people and you don't want them to be, to you know, bear the burden of supporting rich people, then you know that you keep universal programs, you have them universal, you keep them universal or you make them universal as opposed to means tested because when they're means tested, that creates a stigma around them and also it makes them very vulnerable to being cut or slashed. Whereas if they're universal, there's not the stigma, right? There's a reason Newt Gingrich talked about welfare queens and not social security queens. And also there is, it becomes a right and not seen as charity and not seen as a handout. It feels like this argument has even gotten broader out beyond identity. There was a pundit recently on the internet who claimed that the reason that people like Bernie Sanders is not at all about policy, but about kind of, I don't know, like these character, like personality, it was a cult of personality basically was his claim. Yeah, I mean, I he said something about, I don't have the quote in front of me. The one thing he kind of tried to say, I think, was that he was like a, did he say he was a political outsider or he's challenging the system? 
I don't I don't remember that. I wouldn't give it that much credit. I mean, I can I can pull it up right now because my mentions are still very much full of it. He said Bernie Sanders supporters are not supporting him because of policy reasons, which I think set a lot of people off because unlike I think most other candidates, I would hazard a guess, when you ask a Sanders supporter why they support Sanders, they always have like a stunningly sharp ability right. to articulate right. precisely yeah. why it is. I mean, they have to choose a narrative, right? Either he has been saying the same thing forever and needs a new message, which is a ridiculous argument. I love when they say that, like you're supposed to have like, a, like you're in the fashion industry and every year you have to have a new thing for the runway. Right. Like, no, when we have single payer, when we have universal health care, Medicare for all, then he can stop talking about it. But right. why would you stop talking about it? Anyway, right. so yes, there's an inconsistency. Either his policy, he's all about policy and keeps focusing on these, these couple of ideas or he doesn't have policy. I mean, I kind of like the idea that because I find him charming. I don't think that most people do. Again, I, he kind of reminds me of my father, uncle, grandfather. It's cute. I think it's kind of projection maybe because the, the people making this argument, they don't base their politics on policy. But if you speak yeah. to any Sanders supporters, you know, they they know that the one thing I will say is that he has an air of in terms of like aesthetics and non-policy. He does have an air of authenticity. Right. But that's related to his commitment and his right. consistency. So that's one thing. But again, it goes back to the policy and precisely the policies and the fact that he's been fighting for the same ones, regardless of how they poll. Right. But yeah, I don't really know what people think draws people to Sanders if it's not the policies. Yeah, well, we're in complete agreement on that. And I think that we're going to see that come into sharper focus as we go forward and people start to try to understand the stickiness of Sanders support. And the pundit right. class who sees the, the kind of downtick that some of the other candidates have experienced are at, at attributing that to them, their support of policies like Medicare for all, when the downtick has corresponded with their backing away from their support of right, Medicare for all. Exactly, it's, right. a, it's a truly bizarre circumstance. But thank you so much, right. Katie, for, for joining you. us to talk about the extent to which Bernie Sanders' identity is mixed up in all of these kind of like bad prognostications. And I hope to have a chance to chat with you more soon as our, our resident Media Maven here on Thank Hear you. the Burn. Maven, I think that's a Yiddish word too. How appropriate. Oh, is it? There you go. Thank you, Katie. You go, yeah. Thank you. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by me, Brianna Joy Gray, Ben Dalton, and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. And it also helps drive traffic to the podcast the more you rate and review all over the place. So be sure to do so and give us a like when you get a chance. Till next week, 